Well, we're, we're wrapping up um, our good news series. We've been in this for, this is our fifth week in this. Basically, we've been doing, we, were, we generally, if you're new, and by the way, I'm Tom, if you're new, I'm, hi, good to meet you, I'm one of the pastors. Um, should have said that. Um, but we are, we normally do in books of the Bible. That's what we generally do, teaching through books, verse by verse. Um, we just finished First and Second Timothy and uh, did, decided to do this series leading up to Easter and on the other side of Easter. So what we're doing is we're focusing on the gospel. We're focusing on what it means uh, for Jesus to save us and, and bring us to himself. And so we've unpacked this uh, good news week by week over the last four weeks, now into the fifth week, and just taking the parts of the gospel uh, and looking at them individually. So we started with the perfect life of Christ. If Jesus had not been God who became man and lived a perfect life, uh, we would not have a savior uh, in any other person, right? No human being aside from the perfect God-man of Christ could, could stand in our place. We then looked at the death of Christ and what the death of Christ means for our salvation, taking our place where we deserved God's wrath and taking that wrath upon himself. And then Easter Sunday, we looked at the resurrection of Jesus and uh, what that means and how that brings us salvation. Last week, we looked, Pastor Chris took us through the ascension of Jesus, which is a part that's not, doesn't get as much uh, press or attention uh, in our circles. And so we wanted to look at that and go, what does that mean for us to have Jesus in heaven, alive at the right hand of God, interceding for us? And so we, we explored that last week. And Today we're going to finish this series by looking at the more or less the last step in this whole process. Uh, we have salvation, but the rest of our world has not yet caught up to that, right? And so we still need something to happen. We need a, a new creation. We need a new kingdom. We, we need a king to lead us uh, appropriately in sinlessness. And that is uh, Jesus, and he is going to come back to set up an um, earthly life with us by recreating all of this brokenness and restoring it to what it was always meant to be. Uh, and Jesus has accomplished that through his life, death, resurrection, and he has ascended, ruling and reigning now, but will one day that rule and reign will be fully realized. So we're talking about the return of Christ today, which uh, if you have been around Springbrook for a while, you know that we love to major on the majors and we minor on the minors. Um, and what is a major on this issue is simple. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when. We don't even have all the answers as to how. But we know he's going to return. That's clearly taught uh, in many, many places. I mean, we could go to hundreds of different passages probably to, to affirm that in our New Testament. Uh, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and uh, part of 5, which will teach us this doctrine in itself. So I don't feel the need to bounce around to all these other passages. Jesus will come back, but we're not going to talk today about all the, the minor disagreements that Christians can have on this issue. We're not going to talk about the millennial views. We're not going to talk about pre-trib or post-trib or mid-trib or no-trib or any of that, right? We're just going to we're just going to talk about um, the foundation of this, which is that Jesus is coming back and what that means for our lives. Why is that doctrine good news? 
That's what I want to hone in on today. Why is it good news that Jesus is coming back? And the Bible doesn't leave us to wonder that. The Bible tells us that. And, and one of the places it does is 1 Thessalonians. So that's where we'll be there. But uh, before we get there, I want to just talk about uh, a couple of danger zones that we need to avoid uh, as people, just generally as human beings on this subject of Christ's return. There's two ditches that we can fall into, and they're both equally problematic. And what we want to be is on, on the road. We don't want to be in the ditch on either side of the road. So let me just walk through kind of where maybe you could be potentially, um, and just generally speaking, in these two ditches. One, the first one is what, I'm, I, I'm just going to coin a term for it. I don't know, uh, there's no technical term, but here's the term that I'll use, uh, is that it's in times ignorance. And what that means, what I mean by that is that we are living functionally at times as if Christ isn't going to come back at all. And we're just like, well, whatever, I'm going to live my life. I'm not going to give any thought to the return of Christ. I'm not going to give any thought to the fact that he's got a plan beyond just here and now. And, and that's a problem, right? Because that's functionally living like we're atheists. Uh, we don't want to do that, right? You may not be an atheist as a, uh, tech, in a technical sense, but we can live functionally that way by just giving zero regard to the return of Christ as a, as a truth and allowing that to shape our lives. Um, there, there's, there's a common thing. I don't know if it's even still going around. This is what the young people used to say, uh, YOLO or something like that, right? Um, do they still say YOLO? I don't know. I don't know. But it's you only live once. That's what that acronym means. And it's, that's actually technically true. We don't have multiple lives. But technically, more precisely, it would be you only live forever. So that's that, that's a problem. Like with this mentality of, well, we only live once, so let's just live it up and enjoy it. That's a ditch that we need to avoid on this side of the road. The other ditch is um, perhaps more of a problem internally in the church. I'm not saying this church in particular, but just in general, the church. And this is what I would call in times uh, insanity. Okay, This is where somebody falls into the trap of being consumed with every waking thought, perhaps every sleeping thought as well, by the return of Christ. And, and everything you do is spinning conspiracies and, and freaking out about every newspaper headline you read and everything is about the end and it's all going to be terrible. It's going to be awful and all this stuff and, and just basically freaking out about it. That's a problem. That's a problem as well. Um, we can't read or we shouldn't read the news in one hand I was going to say newspaper, but we don't have newspapers anymore. Uh, but you don't have your news app in one hand and your Bible in the other. That's not how we live as Christians. It's not how we should live. And this, just a, this craziness that we can find ourselves in is a problem. And the Bible is going to address that. And it's interesting because in 1 Thessalonians, Paul basically attacks, uh, not in a negative, not like in a bad way, but just goes after both of these extremes and helps us to see that the, the doctrine of Christ's return is good news for us. It's not bad news. It, it's actually not meant to consume every waking moment of our lives, but it's also not meant to be completely uh, ignored. 
we've got to avoid those ditches. So let's get into the text. And uh, we're going to look at this. Now, here's the thing. We're going to preach through First and Second Thessalonians in the fall, Lord willing. That's the plan. So we are going to do a much deeper dive in this in the, in the near future, relative near future. Um, but there's a lot here. We're looking at basically a chapter and a half this morning in our Bibles, and we can't do justice to every verse or every passage or every word. We've got we to kind of do broad strokes here, okay? So we're going to start um, by looking at verse 1 to 12 of chapter 4, and basically looking at how Paul establishes this discussion about the end times. Because he's going to get explicit about it in the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. But he doesn't start there, actually. This is what's really interesting, is that 1 Thessalonians was written because uh, Timothy had been sent to Thessalonica. Paul was somewhere, I think they say Corinth, but who knows. But he's... um, he sends Timothy to this church and basically wants to check in on them and say, how are they doing? Go, go see how they're doing. And Timothy goes, spends some time with the Thessalonians and uh, comes back to Paul and gives him a report. I'm not making that up. That's explicitly said in the text here. Okay, so you can read your Bible and that's why the letter was written because Timothy comes back with a report about the church. The church... Um, was doing really, really well overall. Uh, There's not a lot of negative stuff in this letter. Uh, Not a lot of things that have to be corrected, but um, there was one thing, uh, maybe a couple things, but but one really glaring thing that was a problem, and that was these people did not understand rightly how to live in light of Christ's return. Some people in the church evidently were just living like hey, we, either we missed the boat or it doesn't matter, so just live however you want. The other group of people in the church were evidently living like uh, on pins and needles, just freaking out about all of this. And so Paul writes this to get us to the center of where we need to be. So that's the context. Um, and basically, as he spends the first three chapters of this letter talking to the Thessalonians about how well they're doing and just encouraging them, and speaking kindly to them about his care for them, his love for them, his, his, that he misses them. That's the first three out of five chapters of this letter. Three-fifths of it is just Paul encouraging this church. But the last couple chapters is where he starts to turn to encouragement of, and correction. So uh, here's his broad, his broad message. Uh, Jesus' Jesus's gospel and his return is good news for your life, for your death, and for his ultimate return at the end. That's, that's our outline, essentially, today. It's good news for your life, right here, right now. It's good news for your death, and it's good news for when Jesus comes back. Okay? So if you're a note taker, you can drop, jot those down and fill in however much you want after that. But here's, here's where we're going to start. Verse 1 through 12. It says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk, that, that word walk means how to live. Right? That's what he's talking about. That's what he means by that, how you're living your life. 
and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger of all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives this Holy Spirit to us, to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is how, what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So this is what's interesting. In this whole section, as you read this in context, he's going to spend most of the time talking about Christ's return specifically. But before he gets there, he establishes something more foundational. And that is what we need to be doing in the meantime. Like, what do we do with the the fact that Christ is going to come back as people who trust in him and believe in him? What do we do with this? Paul's essential answer is live the Christian life. If If you read those 12 verses with me, that's what he's telling us to do. He starts with, hey, you need to like love Jesus. He, talk, he talks about this in the context of, uh, of sexual ethics and what we do with our bodies because obviously that was a problem in that church as it is in every church. But he, he uses that as a specific issue to deal with for them. But this is a, there's a broader point here that, that we are called to love Jesus with who we are and that should actually mean that we listen to him and, and do what he calls us to do and to live in a way that honors him. So he says, while we're waiting for Jesus to come back, we should love Jesus and see that actually work out in our lives. And then he goes from, uh, so that's verse 1 to 8, and then verse 9 through 10, he transitions to a second thing that we should be doing as we wait for Jesus, which is love people, right? Brotherly love. You have no, one to, no need for anyone to write to you because you've been doing that really well, but do it more and more. That's what he says. Love people. Love Jesus. Love people. Is this sounding familiar? Hopefully, if you've been here a while. And now there's one more thing he says in verse 11 and 12. This, is, this one is actually becoming one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I think it's really amazing. And I think we need to apply it more to our lives just in the, the world we live. He says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So first he tells them, hey, you just need to like live a quiet life. 
You don't need to be a big shot. You don't need to be anybody impressive or, or fancy or someone, someone that people need to look at and go, wow, that, look at them. He's just saying, live a quiet life, mind your own business, and work. Do your job with whatever that is, whatever that looks like, as we instructed you. So, so I think part of this is probably, and we actually get this sense when you read 1 Thessalonians and then 2 Thessalonians. And in 2 Thessalonians, he actually drills down on this issue even more uh, by basically confronting idleness in the church in, Thessalon- in the Thessalonian church. Like this church was obviously struggling with people not wanting to work, not actually being a part of society in that regard, not living uh, the, the way they were called to live. And so this, this may be a, a, a little bit of a starting point into getting some of these guys off, off the couch, so to speak. They didn't have couches back then, but you know, get, get them actually doing something with their lives. But, but notice this, he's saying, live quietly, mind your own affairs and work. Basically, he's saying just live a normal life. But why? He actually tells us why in verse 12. He says, so that. So what's the point of living a quiet life, minding your business and, and, and just working with your hands? What is the point of that? This is amazing. He says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Meaning non-Christians. That's what the term outsiders means. He's talking about people outside the church. Those who don't believe in Jesus. So he's actually saying that the way we can walk properly before those who don't know Jesus is to just live a quiet life, mind our business, work with our hands. I think this does not get enough attention in our lives. Basically, follow his logic here. His point is, if you want to live a life that other people who don't know Jesus look to and go, wow, there's something different about this person. Maybe their Jesus has something to do with this. It's just like, be a normal person who doesn't get into fights all the time, who doesn't have to stick your nose into everybody's thing, business, whatever. Like, let, just let, let yourself be worried about your life in a sense and work and live a quiet life. And that, in that way, you can walk properly with those outside so this is third, third thing, right? Love Jesus, love people. And what is this? Help people love Jesus. That's what he's saying. Like, so, so I say all that as we talk about this issue of Christ's return is that we, we just need to bring some sanity back into our lives. We need to stop freaking out about every last thing. We, we really do. Like we, we need the calm of our hearts to be met here. Christ has something calming and his presence should lead us to actually want to honor him, to love each other, and to just help other people love Jesus. Like that, if that's what we're giving our hearts to, our lives to, we're on the right path. This is what a friend of mine would, would call uh, be a gospel nobody. I think that's what the point of this passage is, is just be a nobody who loves Jesus and, and let Jesus use you in the small ways he wants to use you to help people see Jesus as an unignorable person in, in your life. 
I, 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 tell, I tell people this a lot. I've said this a lot over the years of preaching here is very few people are receptive to a person's message about Jesus when you're a jerk. It's just the truth, right? It's like, uh, if you're a jerk, people aren't going to listen to you. Thank you. Um, but that's where, that's what he's getting at, is live your life in such a way that people are drawn to Christ because you're just like normal in some sense, right? You can be, you can live a different kind of life. We're called to that, right? I'm not saying you're normal in a sinful way. I'm saying you're normal in a sense that you're not just driving home this, uh, this obnoxious version of Christianity. All right, so good news for your life. There is sanity in this. And I don't think it's an accident that he starts there before he starts talking about what happens when Christ comes back. Because if we're living frantic, crazy lives, then this doctrine has the potential to make us more frantic and crazy. But let's look at where he goes. He says, but I, verse 13, we, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And asleep is a reference here to those who have died. Okay, so those who are asleep, he doesn't want you to be uninformed about these people, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Um, all right, so there's so much to unpack there. This, would be, this will be its own sermon in the fall sometime. Like, it, we don't have time to unpack everything that's here. But here's the issue. There was a lot of misconception in Thessalonica about what happens to someone when they die. And there was evidently a viewpoint that if you die before Jesus comes back, you just miss the boat. You're out of luck. And so that led them to grieving and freaking out and being afraid of those for those who have died. And they're thinking, oh, there's no hope now for them. So Paul is writing to correct that theology. He's saying, no, no, no. Those who have died in Christ will be raised. Their bodies will be raised to meet the Lord when he comes. And, and they will be with the Lord just as those who are alive on the earth will be with the Lord. And so it's, it's good news for our Death, that's the point, is that our death is just a temporary holding situation. Uh, well, we're in, in spirit with the Lord. Our bodies are in the ground, but when Christ returns, we'll be reunited again to our bodies. We'll be resurrected and have life forever with him as will those people who are alive at the time. So, so here's where I want to go with this. I, I want to state an obvious fact, but an unpleasant one you're going to die. You're going to die. And you're saying, well, Jesus will come back before I die. Keep hoping. Okay, keep on, keep, I, I hope you're right. 
But let's be honest. Every generation of Christian, from the apostles to the apostle Paul right here, he's making this sound like the Thessalonians will be alive when Jesus comes back. They aren't. You may not be either. In fact, I'd say it's probably more likely that you won't be. And I actually, I think that that's good news, that Jesus is delaying his return, because that means more people can become Christians. This is what Peter talks about explicitly. He says uh, that Jesus' delay is actually because of his patience to bring more people to faith. So we should just kind of sit in that for a bit. But let's, let's re- see the reality. We're going to die, more than likely. Maybe not. Okay, I'll, I'll throw you that bone. Maybe, maybe not, but probably. Psalm 39, 4 to 5 says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few hand breaths. My lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. I could keep going with verses, but we don't, we don't have time to look at all of them, right? The, the fact is, is that sin is in the world. Death is a result of sin. We will probably die, and we may die, most likely will die before Jesus comes back. And so why is this passage in the scriptures? It's to give us hope and good news that death is not the end. If you trust in Jesus before, and you die before he comes back, it's not, it's not over. You have a future and a hope forever with him. We have nothing to lose, in other words. This is why Paul can say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's gain. Why? Because there will be a tangible presence of the Lord that we will experience uh, as our spirits go to be with him at our death. But there will be a fullness of our presence with Jesus as he comes back and reunites us with our, our bodies. So if you trust in Jesus, you have nothing to lose. We will be united with him forever. That's the point of this passage is, in a nutshell. Is this section of this passage is those who have died will be raised and they will experience life with him forever. We will always, verse 8, 17, we will always be with the Lord all of us, whether we're alive when he comes or whether we're dead when he comes. We will be with the Lord. So it's good news for your life. It's good news for your death. Now there's one more thing that we're going to unpack here. Get into chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. And this is the good news for when Jesus does fully come to see us and to right all wrongs. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, which is his return, will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pain comes upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. 
For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, alive or dead, that's what he's saying there, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is an amazing thing. And again, this would be its own sermon, um, or it should be. Like, there's just so much here to unpack. But let's just hit the highlights. Number one, verse one, tells us that we do not and are not meant to know the time of Christ's return. He says, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written to you. Now, he's not saying you have nothing, no need for anything to be written to you because you know already. He's saying you don't have anything to be written to you about this because it's not for you to know. It's just not, it's not your business to know when Christ is coming back. How many times did, did the apostles ask Jesus, when, are, are you going to set up your kingdom now? And, and, of course, the answer before his crucifixion was no. Like, it's not time yet. And then when he ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1, they ask him that again, and he says, the Father has fixed this date by his own authority. It's not for you. We live, here's the thing, here's the point Paul's making. We live in a in-between. We do not know when Christ will come back, but we know he's coming back. And so he's saying we, we will not be surprised when he comes back if we are children of the day, children of, of the Lord. We, we are not going to be taken completely by surprise. We know it's going to happen. We just don't know exactly when. And so he, he's like, he uses the analogy of a pregnant woman who goes into labor. Like, you, you should know if you're pregnant or if your wife is pregnant, right? You should know that. Hopefully you know that. And so you know a baby's showing up, but when those late, now, of course, we have ultrasound technology. We get a little bit better read on things than, than they did, but here's the point. They knew that there was a baby coming, but the day that the labor pain started was a surprise. But it wasn't a surprise that a baby was going to be born. That's not what surprised them. They knew that. They just didn't know the precise moment in which that baby would come into the world. And even with the best technology we have, we still don't know the precise moments. They don't have it down to the minute, right? They might have it down to the week or something, but not. there's still some mystery in that up to this point. But here's the point. Jesus is coming back, so that's not the surprise. But the surprise will be when he comes back. When he comes back, he will, he will set all these things right. And this is where, this is where Paul gives us some serious encouragement in the gospel. Look at verse 9. I want to hone in on this. He says, all right, he gives us all of this about Jesus coming back, which I I can get a sense in reading this that Paul's going, okay, they might be freaking out about this. So here's what they need to be reminded of. Here's what we need to be reminded of. God has not destined us for wrath. If you're in Jesus... There is no wrath. There is nothing to fear when Christ comes back. 
We don't get wrath because we haven't been destined for wrath. What have we been destined for? But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have, as believers in Jesus, have nothing to fear. We have no wrath coming. There is nothing that's going to separate us from the love of Christ. Why is that true? Verse 10, because Jesus Christ died for us. Jesus Christ, on the cross, took the wrath of God from you and placed it on himself. We don't have wrath coming to us if we're in Christ because Jesus is the one who died. He's the one who truly experienced the fullness of God's cup of wrath. He drank it to the dregs. So whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Jesus took God's wrath for us and from us so that whether we are dead when he comes back or whether we're alive when he comes back, we will live with him. And I notice this in the, at the, you don't have to go back here, but 18 of chapter four and then 11 of chapter five say almost the same thing. Therefore, encourage one another. I, I did not really get a sense growing up or in the Bible college I went to that these things were encouraging things. I was not encouraged. I was scared. They tried to fear monger in some sense. The Bible teaches that this is to be an encouragement to us. And so here's what I, this is the thing that I've said to a lot of people. Um, If your end times theology is not encouraging, you're doing it wrong. You need to re-correct. We we need the encouragement of the gospel in this because Jesus died and rose so that we would be with him forever. So that gets us to the end of the passage we're looking at, but I I feel like we're, we're living in some times right now that are interesting. Would you all agree with that, maybe? <laughs> We've been through some things the last couple of years. Um... So, so what do we do with that? Like, I know, it's, I know that many of us can kind of get, because we've never been through such, I think as a generation that's living right now, um, we haven't really seen this kind of social upheaval, uh, this kind of cultural shift, shifting happening. And I think it can, it can be really easy for us to transition into fear and go, well, I don't know what's going on. Uh, our country's not what it, what it was. Uh, I don't know if I like this. Like, we can kind of freak out. And I came across, this isn't going to surprise any of you who have been around a while, but I came across a C.S. Lewis quote that um, is super helpful. He's all, like, just read everything he wrote and you'll, you'll find help too. Um, but here's, here's the thing. He wrote this, this, um, this essay. It's not a full book. It's like, it's an essay. He wrote it, I think, for a a publication. He wrote it in 1948. And it's entitled, On Living in an Atomic Age. So 1945, the U.S. drops 
a couple of atomic bombs on Japan ends the war, but also destroys a lot of lives. And that shook people in the 40s and early 50s. And, and that led to a period of Cold War and all these things with Russia. And now we're kind of back to that. Like It's like history repeats itself. It's kind of interesting. Uh, but, but you've got all these fears. And in 1948, there were a lot of fears about the bomb being dropped. Now, I'm not saying that that's what we're afraid of. Maybe, maybe it is because of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. But but it may not be that. It may be something else. But here's the thing. What I'm going to read to you, I'm going to have the words up on the screen in a moment too because it's kind of longer than what I normally read, so I want you to track with it. Um, but you can just pluck out atomic bomb and put in whatever you're afraid of, and these words are still true. Okay? Uh, it's general because it's meant to be. So l- l- you can put the words up now, and here's, here's what it says. <coughs> How are we to live in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply why you would have, why, how you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night or indeed as you are already living in an age of cancer an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and I and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. Gotta love Lewis's honesty, right? It's perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death was not a chance at all but a certainty. One more screen. This is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we're going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb or fill in the blank, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, A microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. That's so helpful. (laughs) Like, so helpful. Because we need to just, we need to go back to the scriptures. This is Lewis. He's writing from a Christian perspective. And he's basically, I'm looking at this going, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands and walk properly before outsiders. Like, this is how we live in uncertain times. This is how we should have always been living. Instead of losing our minds and freaking out and overwhelmingly, the Bible speaks to this, that we should be concerned with what we do with the time we have here. Overwhelmingly. It doesn't spend most of its time talking about the apocalypse. Not even close. 
what it does tell us is that we have a life to live and we have a God who is sovereign and we have a savior who is alive and he is ruling and reigning in the world and we should probably start living like that's true with his help. If God raised Jesus to life and he did and if Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven, which he is, then we have nothing to lose. This is what Paul says in Romans 14:8. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. What do you have to be afraid of? So here's just a few encouragements from your pastor to you. This is take it or leave it, but this is something I've, I've found helpful in my own heart and life. Um, I would recommend that you get into your Bibles and read the good news of the gospel for your life far more than you read the bad news of the world. There is no shortage of bad news. And you know why? It's because bad news sells. It keeps you clicking. They know what they're doing. If they were just reporting on all the puppies that have been born, you wouldn't keep turning in, tuning into it. But you'll tune in if Russia's going to drop a bomb somewhere. This is, this is the mechanism that they use. They try to, because it's what makes people come back. So we have the best news. Let's get that into our hearts. Secondly, here's, here's kind of a related idea. But I would seriously encourage you to get off of social media, at least for a season, because it's reprogramming how we look at the world. And I know, you, if you've been here, you know I rail against social media. You know that. I'm, and I, it's just another, you can roll your eyes at me, that's fine. But I, I firmly believe you need real people in real life to love you and keep you focused on the encouragements of the gospel. We, there's, there's tons there. Um, but this is a definitive fact. Social media is bad for us. We know it. We just are hopelessly addicted to it, so we're choosing to turn a blind eye. Turn it off if you can. I'll come and take your computer from you if you, if you need me to. <laughs> Here's the third thing. Re- keep reminding yourself that Jesus has conquered. Preach the gospel to your heart. Keep preaching the gospel to your heart. This goes back to being in the Bible. This goes back to being with other Christians. The things that I'm encouraging to do are, are, are biblical principles of how we walk through life. Meditate on scripture, be in real community, preach the gospel to your heart. That's what you need to do. And while we wait for Jesus to come back, whenever that happens, whether it happens in our lifetime or another, we, we will never go wrong by doing these things. And we need to be settled in the good news of the gospel for our lives. He is alive. He is sovereign. He is ruling and reigning in the world. He is. God's in charge of who's in charge, right? We said that a lot during the election season. We need to keep resting in that and and reminding ourselves of it. And we do that by being in the Bible and by being with fellow Christians. So let's, let's go at that. Those are my encouragements to you. And again, I... I'm not making this like a hard and fast thing. I'm not trying to dominate over you. Just do what you feel the Lord's leading you to do. But I don't think you can go wrong by, by prioritizing some of these things in your life.
Okay, so I've said enough already, I think. So I'll close us in prayer and then we'll, we'll transition into a time of singing and response and, and partaking of the Lord's table. Jesus, we thank you of the promise that you are coming back for us. We confess and know that we don't have the date for that, the time for that. That's, that's beyond our pay grade, Lord. We know that and we confess it to you. Forgive us for trying to figure out more than we need to know. And we pray you'd help us to stay centered on Jesus, to keep living life, to trust you with the uncertain times we live in. We've always, every generation has lived in uncertain times. Would you help us to rest in that too? We pray that as we remember you in your death for us at the table, we pray that as we remember you through the songs we sing, We pray that our hearts would be drawn deeper into you and the hope that we have in the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.